So for this podcast, I've been really lucky to team with an extraordinary group of people that really bring this show to life. There's a lot of research, interviews. We're working all day and night, and I'm always working on other projects at the same time, and hiring is hard. That's why I'm thrilled that our new presenting sponsor is ZipRecruiter. It uses what I call a moneyball approach, using a combination of algorithms and professionals to match right people for the right job. In fact, 80% of employees who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And right now, using our code, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH. One more time, try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH. Thank you for listening and your support. I'm grateful to have directed documentaries that were on HBO, ESPN, Netflix. And about a year ago, I filmed and edited a new movie that I really liked. But I was the only one. I pitched it to cable channels, submitted to several film festivals, and it remained sitting in my apartment on a bookshelf and on hard drives in a cabinet. In the movie, I used a few clips of Sir Winston Churchill, who is to me and many others the most fascinating and complex figure in world history. Nearly everything in Churchill's life was big, really big. He led the free world in defeating Hitler and the Nazis, heralded as one of the most important people to ever live. His failures were also big. When he was a secretary of the Navy, he decided to invade Gallipoli on the border of Turkey. During the 10-month battle, approximately half a million people died. Churchill was dismissed from his cabinet position. Churchill also wrote a staggering 43 books in 72 volumes, in addition to endless letters with everyone from world leaders to his wife and mother. He also began painting at 40 years old and produced at least 500 paintings, most of which stand on their own as distinguished pieces of art. And for me and many others, his most unique personality trait was his depression. Some would say without it, he would have never been able to lead the world to victory over the Nazis. Churchill termed it his black dog, a less demoralizing word than simply depression. My interest in the legendary British Prime Minister began quite a few years ago after hearing about this depression. As someone who's lived with depression myself since I was young, I was exhilarated to hear about a person with such a serious disorder that was able to lead the free world to victory over Hitler. The movie that I began this podcast talking about, the movie that remains on my shelf, is called Black Dog. The movie is about a character like myself trying to open up to friends and family about depression. I use snippets of Winston Churchill in the movie because I'm obsessed with him, and so is the character that I play. Maybe the movie is no good, but I know projects I've worked on that aren't all that great, and this I really don't think is one of them. I think the movie has not resonated because I couldn't figure out a way to really make depression something relatable or understandable. It's really difficult. But it also shows how seriously people like me look up to Winston Churchill for hope. I mean, I made an entire freaking movie inspired by him. And for the record, there's a 1988 movie called Black Dog, but that has nothing to do with the Black Dog that we're talking about. It is believed that there are more biographies on Churchill than any other historical figure, unless you count Jesus. In many of these biographies, Churchill's depression or Black Dog is well documented. However, in the last few months, I found myself realizing 
that well-documented doesn't mean accurately well-documented. What I discovered turned everything I thought I knew upside down. Did the man who saved the free world from annihilation really have depression? Did he really have the urge to kill himself? Did he really think about jumping in front of an express train? What really happened? To this day, if I have a few minutes, I'll sit down and just listen to Churchill's inspiring speeches during the war. Speeches that inspired a nation and really the world. I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory there is no survival. I wanted to learn more about the Prime Minister. I read a book written by his physician, Lord Moran. In the book, Lord Moran talks about Churchill's clinical depression, what Churchill famously called his black dog. Black dog was a term Victorian nannies used when talking about badly behaved children. I also read the popular book titled Churchill's Black Dog, Kafka's Mice and Other Phenomena of the Human Mind, written by best-selling author and renowned psychiatrist Anthony Storr. I was quickly reminded how Storr lays out the symptoms of Churchill's disorder. Churchill had once told his longtime doctor, Lord Moran, about never wanting to be too close to a subway. Churchill said, quote, I don't like standing near the edge of a platform when an express train is passing through. I like to stand right back and, if possible, to get a pillar between me and the train. A depressed person doesn't want a certain feeling or suicidal thought to come to mind at a bad time. Churchill also uses a metaphor in now a famous letter he sends to his wife, saying, the light faded out of the picture. Storr's book also points out Churchill's prolific and highly regarded books and his well-acclaimed paintings, and that mental illness is oftentimes linked to the arts. So as I left the library, I began wondering if there was something more up to date. Storr's book was written in 1990. I came across the New York Times bestselling book, A First Rate Madness. It takes a look not just at Churchill, but others with purported mental illnesses. Lincoln, Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., and of course, Churchill. The author, a doctor at Tufts, explains people with depression can be uniquely qualified to lead in history's most trying times. The author says, quote, Churchill never surrendered to the black dog that gnawed at him from the inside. Having survived thus far, he didn't intend to surrender to other dogs, whether Hitler or Mussolini. The book then brings up Churchill's use of amphetamines, saying, quote, Lord Moran gave Churchill amphetamines at least in the 1950s and possibly earlier. The author continues, 
Amphetamines are effective antidepressants and were the most commonly used drugs for depression in the 1930s and 1940s. They're sometimes prescribed for depression even now. The author points out that Churchill hardly slept and, in addition to other factors, concludes the Prime Minister likely had bipolar one or two. The book also says that Churchill's father was, quote, insane and points out that mental illness is partly genetic. It also says that Winston's daughter, Diana, suffered from a major depressive episode and committed suicide. However, the book doesn't mention Churchill's mother, who, as it turns out, lived an incredibly productive, happy, and healthy life. In terms of his kids, and there was more than one that suffered from serious mood disorders, I thought for clarification's sake, I should understand what Churchill's wife, Clementine Churchill, was like. I tracked down Sonia Purnell, the author of Clementine, The Life of Mrs. Winston Churchill. It's not just beautifully written, moving, and enlightening, really all the above, but it's literally first of its kind. Other than a book by one of Churchill's daughters, there's never been a book on Clementine. So I started the conversation a bit sidetracked. For a man who's been written about so much, a man who needed his wife um, in so many different ways, it feels like there's this like overwhelming, I mean, this is my opinion, but overwhelming element of sexism that a man, that you know, men get to write history in so many ways, in a lot of ways, in most ways. And it took a woman like yourself to finally say, well, damn it, somebody needs to tell this story. Was it difficult getting the book published? Um, no, it wasn't. I mean, it, it is interesting about Churchill. I mean, he's supposed to be the most biographed person in history. And you can, if you see a shelf in a, a specialist bookshop with a number of books, and you can really imagine that. And there, there were whole books that I read called things like The Greatest Britain Unmasked. Hmm. It didn't even mention his wife once in the index. Purnell continued... I knew nothing about her either. And it was only once I started realizing just how influential and powerful and unusual she was, as I realized that this, there was a great story to tell. It was a partnership. She was very much an equal in that partnership. And once you start looking into that marriage, you, you realize that none of it could have happened without her. For me, the biggest surprise in all of this was... Clementine actually suffered after the war in particular, when she did have, I mean, the most appalling depression, and she had shock therapy, ECT, and, and indeed people were very worried about her. And I met a nurse who, who nursed her at that point who, who told me a junior nurse that her job was to make sure the padlocks were in place on the windows. I mean, you never had anything like that with, with Churchill. I think it, it was something that he felt deeply, but it wasn't depression. I don't think that at any point Black Dog was really a full-scale clinical depression. I think it was a heightened emotion because Churchill was full of heightened emotions. Here, Sonia is bringing up this idea that perhaps Churchill wasn't depressed. Perhaps he had a moderate episode of adult depression two or three times in his life, as many people do when triggered by a sad event or change in lifestyle. For Churchill, this would have been around the time when he was voted out of office and had just lost his mother. Having just read Sonia's book for a second time, I read her a quote from a Churchill letter to his wife. Quote, Do not abridge your holiday if it's doing you good, but of course, I feel far safer from worry and depression when you're with me. Sonia's response? I think he was an insecure man, which I think is different from real depression. 
his his childhood uh, he, it was quite loveless really i mean he he had this lovely nanny mrs everest who did her best but he was deprived of parental affection his father was very aloof and rather disdainful his mother was too busy socializing to take any notice you know the poor churchill who was bullied as a child really grew up he used to write these letters to his mother and say please please mummy please come and see me at school which he wouldn't bother to do you know for, for months years at a time and he'd put so many x's on the page with kisses you know they sort of tumble off the page this was a man who had real no real grounding until he met clementine and then suddenly she made him feel safe as, as he puts it there made him feel secure had a sort of um a loving warm home that you know he could always go back to so i think that's what he misses whenever she was away it sort of reminded him of that childhood where when he did go back home often his parents would be there and he'd just be running around empty rooms and that's something he never wanted to experience again and when he was with her he never felt it do you think that insecurity lasts throughout his life do you know i think it did i think sonia's note to question churchill's depression is one worth exploring which we'll do but it was also fascinating to hear Sonia talk about Churchill being insecure, especially when hearing many of his breathtaking speeches he gave during the war. This from his famous speech, The Finest Hour. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad sunlit upland. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. In Sonia Purnell's book and during our conversation, she adds incredible context to these Churchill speeches. She reminds us of Clementine's pivotal role. I think, you know, those incredible speeches that we all now know and sort of legendary and things, but, you know, she helped him edit them, but she also helped him rehearse them because he, he was never, I mean, there's incredible amount of things, but he was never a really confident public speaker. Once, you know, way back in his career, He'd completely dried up on the floor of the House of Commons. He'd forgotten completely what it was that he wanted to, to say. He had to sit down in humiliation. This was just awful. Um, and it's something that he never forgot. So he was always, you know, quite worried. This is why he rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, and she helped him through that. And then at the end of the speech, the first thing he would do is look to her to make sure he'd done it okay. Um, it, it is extraordinary, isn't it, to think, but yeah. that's, um, that was what was going through his mind. And do you know what? The more 
I understood about this marriage, the more I understood about him. And in a way, the more I respected him because he was this embodiment of someone who was always fighting his own demons and in doing so became a great man. So my research started to take a turn. As I was reading more on Churchill, I spoke with Jim Miller, legendary author and creator and host of one of my favorite podcasts, Origins. His first season is about Curb Your Enthusiasm. We share the same recording studio, and I told him in passing the focus of this episode. Being an incredibly nice guy, Jim, also a Churchill fan, if you will, suggested that I speak with Paul Reed, the author of one of Churchill's greatest biographies, the third installment of The Last Lion. The idea of interviewing Paul Reed was intimidating. There isn't a figure larger and more complex than Churchill. There is a reason it took Paul nearly nine years to write the book. Jim, my podcast studio sharing friend, knew Paul because Jim wrote an extraordinary piece for the New York Times Magazine about how Paul was in fact the second author to take on the third installment. The author of the first two, William Manchester, ran into terrible writer's block and died before finishing the final volume. Manchester, before passing away, selected Paul Reed to write this final installment. Reed's book is a triumph, and that's just not coming from this humble narrator, but from Churchill experts, history buffs, and readers alike. It's not to be compared to Manchester's first or second books. For better or worse, that's inconsequential. It's that Paul Reed wrote a masterpiece. So I did my best to prepare. I didn't just reread his book, officially titled The Last Lion, Winston Spencer Churchill, Defender of the Realm, 1940-1965, but I read as much as I could about Paul Reed, including tracking down old articles he had written and watching an old interview he had done on C-SPAN. But nothing could have prepared me for the truth, particularly about Churchill and his black dog. So I began research on the book in 2003-2004 after William Manchester handed me his notes and I went into it thinking, well, at some point we're going to have to get to this depression and the black dog and the melancholia that Manchester wrote about in uh, the first two volumes of The Last Lion, uh, especially the second volume alone, is imbued with this underlying thread of depression and melancholia. Paul obviously read every book on Churchill, anything ever written by Churchill, said by Churchill, other people's accounts of Churchill, letters to and from Churchill, correspondence he had with FDR and other world leaders, even rumors about Churchill. Then something happened. And I realized, maybe a few months into the job, nobody's mentioning this depression or melancholia on Churchill's part. So I, I started a couple of spreadsheets, I call them. They were just Word documents, one of which on, was on Churchill's alcohol consumption, and the other was on his mental health. And I went through those diaries looking for key words, you know, martini, wine, beer, depression, uh, spent three days in bed without saying a word, any kind of hint that... Uh, you know, he, he might have been suffering regular bouts of depression, which a psychiatrist will tell you, you really have to have a couple of bouts a year lasting a week or two at a time or more. I mean, that's chronic depression. And to be clear, that's what we're talking about here. 
The writing of Lord Moran, Anthony Storr, and the more recent book, A First Rate Madness, talk about Churchill's chronic depression or bipolar disorder. Something I learned was true of Clementine, something that is very different than a moderate episode of adult depression, which is triggered by a life event. And I couldn't find anything. I, I couldn't find anyone saying after a meeting, uh, Churchill, you know, had his head in his hands and was uh, incapable of speaking or thinking, uh, or Churchill spent four days in bed and the word around uh, 10 Downing Street is he's having another one of those episodes. Nothing, nothing couched, nothing direct. Obviously, despite it being the one and only Paul Reed, it was hard to believe that Churchill's depression was something just made up. And an even larger question is, why would someone make this up? What would be the point of that? What would be the motivation? So before getting into the medical details, which are important, of what exactly entails quote-unquote chronic depression, my line of questioning started with the most basic. What about the famous writings and books of Lord Moran, who was Churchill's personal physician from 1940 to 1965, and wrote about the Prime Minister's black dog? His memoirs is not a publication of his diary. He went back and to certain incidents and dates and periods of time and wrote it 20 years after the fact. And in that memoir, uh, he not only betrays his doctor-patient confidentiality with Churchill, but he badgers the old man. Just to be clear, the old man was Churchill's playful nickname that his younger staff would use. But he badgers the old man, literally, when Churchill was in his 80s, about this black dog of depression. And the origin of that expression, the black dog of depression, was a letter that Churchill wrote to his wife, Clementine, I think in 1911. And he was having what a couple of psychiatrists told me appeared to be a moderate adult uh, depressive episode. In the letter, Churchill makes a reference to his black dog. Churchill being Churchill, who was so well-read and loved Samuel Johnson's work, uh, struck me, and I, I can't verify this, but it makes sense, that when he wrote that to Clementine and put his black dog in mm. quotes in a letter, that you know, he was, uh, it was a nod to Samuel Johnson. Johnson called his depression his black dog. So I asked Paul about four very basic indicators used in many history books that point to Churchill's depression. One, Churchill being scared of being near a train track wasn't necessarily some thought of suicide, but quite possibly the fact that he had vertigo. Anyone with vertigo knows not to stand near a train track. Two, what about Churchill's quote that the light faded from the picture. Churchill would also go on to say that, quote, the light faded back in, and he lived happily ever after. It's Lord Moran who brings us up to Churchill some 50 years later, after Churchill first wrote that note. Moran having quite possibly read that letter that Churchill had sent. Three, what about Churchill's lack of sleep, that he would wake up early and stay up late? Well, Paul Reed notes that he took naps in the afternoon. And then four, what about the term black dog? Again, after he wrote this in 1911, 
when Churchill was in his mid to late 30s. Not one diary entry from anyone close to Churchill for the rest of his life, other than Moran, not one diary entry includes the phrase black dog. Uh, That, you know, the prime minister is in one of his black dogs, or the black dog is back at the prime minister's throat. Um, I had so many questions, but started with one, what was Lord Moran's motivation for this? And two, isn't he pulling a Dr. Phil here? Breaking doctor-patient confidentiality? Well, he was a strange bird. Paul isn't referring to Dr. Phil, but Lord Moran. And people who William Manchester interviewed, um, you know, still alive 20 years ago, and people I interviewed, such as Churchill's daughter, Mary, Mary Soames, they didn't much like Moran for betraying that confidentiality, from passing off his memoirs as a contemporaneous diary when it was actually written years later, much of it. And they especially didn't like Moran for pegging Churchill, uh, you know, for inventing this whole black dog of depression narrative. Since the book came out, it's been shown that Moran's diary was actually not a diary at all because he didn't keep a diary, at least not during his time with Winston. In fact, the book is an account based on Moran's old notes and from other sources. But why is Lord Moran interested in pursuing this black dog narrative? Despite Churchill setting up an endowment for Moran's wife, which was quite generous, Lord Moran still was seeking money. So Moran, I know, was, uh, you know, needed money after the war. Everyone in England did and Mm -hmm. got a book deal. A book deal. Of course. A book deal. It's incredible how some things never change. Pardon my brief riff here, but John McEnroe got a lot of press not too long ago when he said that the number one ranked woman tennis player would be ranked, quote, like 700 around men. Many were surprised at the comment. Why would he say that? Well, Johnny Mac had a book coming out. More recently, Donna Brazil, a political operative, unraveled important information about the DNC. Whether she did or not or what she said isn't really relevant to my point. She didn't decide to reveal this out of the goodness of her heart. She was selling a book. Lord Moran was no different. And in my opinion, really just my opinion after doing research, I think Lord Moran knew the more depressed Churchill appeared to be, the worse his black dog was. And the more Lord Moran looked like a hero the more he's responsible for helping keep the world's greatest hero healthy and the more his book sells. I'm not necessarily casting him as just a bad person, albeit this appears like an awfully selfish maneuver, but what I am definitely saying is this man was trying to sell some books. Or more to the point of this conversation, Paul Reed simply said, Moran told a story and and it stuck. So I've always found it really tricky to get someone a great gift. I seem to always get it wrong, and I try. Now is a great time to visit a Sleep Number store where, for this week only, you can save 50% on the ultimate limited edition bed with Sleep IQ technology. And queen mattresses start at only $699.99. So here are three of my favorite parts to my Sleep Number bed. One, it turns out that 9 out of 10 couples disagree on how they like their mattress firmness. 
The Sleep Number bed lets you choose your ideal comfort and support on each side. So it's just perfect for both of you. Two, the newest Sleep Number beds are so smart, they automatically adjust to how your body likes it and have an adjustment for snoring. Three, I always like a good stat, and Sleep Number beds cost about the same as a traditional mattress, last twice as long, and 91% of owners recommend them. My sleep number setting is 40. My IQ score last night was 65. So come in during the ultimate sleep number week, now through Monday, and save 50% on the ultimate limited edition bed with Sleep IQ technology. You'll only find sleep number at any of the 550 sleep number stores nationwide. Visit sleepnumber.com. That's sleepnumber.com to find a store near you and be sure to tell them. What really happened sent you. Paul also points out that if you read Martin Gilbert's official biography on Churchill, all eight volumes of them, you won't see anything about depression. And Gilbert doesn't go to any great length to hide anything about Churchill. Roy Jenkins, who also wrote what is an incredible and also thick book about Churchill, had nothing in there either about depression. You can peel Churchill like an onion. There are military biographies of him and uh, political biographies, but I don't think you're ever going to find a, a reputable mental health biography with the premise that, you know, here's the story in 300 pages of a lifelong depressive who overcame his uh, burdens and obstacles to lead England in the war. Just not going to happen. You won't find this uh, legend of depression. This made me think of Anthony Storr's book that I had just reread at the library. It had compelling evidence of Churchill's black dog. Said Paul, Moran uh, knew Anthony Storr, the the famed English-British psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. I acted here like I knew what Paul was saying, but... I was really shocked. It took me a second. Anthony Storr knew Lord Moran? The man who wrote the book that brought to an even larger audience this idea that Churchill suffered from severe mental illness was in fact friends with Moran? The man who wrote about Black Dog to seemingly profit for his own book? Anthony Storr never met Churchill. He diagnosed him based on conversations with Moran. And that's the extent of the medical file on Churchill. There is none as far as mental health. As far as the amphetamines Churchill took, as talked about in A First Rate Madness, I did some research. And yes, Churchill was given amphetamines sometime in 1963, but not for depression, which the book suggests. But because Churchill just had a stroke and would use them before big speeches. So that really only leaves one biographer who spoke of Churchill's depression. And that was, in fact, William Manchester, the man who passed away before finishing the book that Paul Reed would ultimately write. Um, you know, my friend William Manchester did suffer from depression, and it was well known. And so he had a proclivity, I think, to, to project, to use the clinical term himself, into that Churchill character in the first two mm. uh, volumes. And so indeed, it wasn't just Moran or his friend Storr, but also in some ways, Paul Reed's good friend and author of the first two volumes of The Last Lion, William Manchester, 
who continued this notion of Churchill's chronic depression, the man who had selected Paul Reed to write that third volume. I spoke with Dr. Paul Keedwell, who's an expert on mood disorders at the Institute of Psychiatry in London, quite possibly the world's top research institution dedicated to discovering what causes mental illness and diseases of the brain. He's also the author of How Sadness Survived, and more recently, Headspace, The Psychology of City Living. Yeah, I mean, I think depression as a word has become overused to sort of uh, mean or fed up or a bit sad. No, depression is definitely an illness. It's an interaction between environment and genetics. I think, interestingly, that it arises from an analogy with heart failure. So uh, they used to call heart failure cardiac depression. Oh. And then, and then they went on to describe uh, this particular type of mental disorder as a, you know, a sort of mental depression, if you like. But as you say, that's got so many connotations. That we, you know, you could. I've thought about campaigning for a return of the word melancholia. I think melancholia is uh, spot on. That's how I oftentimes best describe it. Yeah. So I I would back your campaign should you start it. (laughs) I had a friend who broke a part of his leg. That's what the doctor said, and that's what happened. This was a legitimate use of the word broken to describe the condition of my friend's leg. The doctor examined it, used an x-ray machine, and proved that it was indeed broken. Luckily, saying a leg is broken doesn't take meaning away from when we use the word in non-medical terms. Say, the relationship is broken, my heart feels broken, that football play was broken. When the medical term broken is being used in such non-medical circumstances, it doesn't take away from the serious meaning behind somebody saying they have a broken leg. Whereas depression is so often used to describe feeling sad or even a weather pattern that it's lost in many ways a clinical meaning. And unlike a broken leg, a person with depression can easily hide it. Saying you're depressed can come across as self-pitying or looking for attention. And when you have a good job, good family and friends, it's hard to imagine, not just for people on the outside, but for that person with the depression, why they are feeling so poorly. It oftentimes doesn't make sense to them either. Talking about it now, I'm sure it comes across a bit pedantic, but I think it's important to this larger Churchill story, and you'll see why. Unlike a broken leg, in which you'll either see it's broken, maybe wearing a cast or hobbling around in crutches, depression can hide. I've been on plenty of sets filming with groups of people, co-workers, and friends who knew me, but was feeling depressed. I'd go to the bathroom, cry, wash my face, and go back to the set. It can be an invisible disease that one can keep a secret right up until the point they die from it. That's just a small part of what makes depression so complicated. Because one, it's a disease. Two, it can be hidden. And three, if you have it and want to tell somebody about it, it's very hard to describe. And that is why I've always loved Winston Churchill's story. It gave me profound inspiration. Other than close family, I didn't tell anyone about my depression for years. In fact, only up until a few months ago. But I would go on YouTube and listen to Churchill's speeches. He'd be talking about winning World War II, and I'd be thinking about the black dog. I'd be thinking, well, shit, if Churchill could save the Western world with his black dog, I can make some documentaries with my black dog. And it's definitely not just me. 
There are endless, endless articles online about Churchill's black dog. I've met plenty of other people inspired by this. There's even a Black Dog Institute, a nonprofit facility for the diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of mood disorders such as depression and bipolar disorder. And now, Paul Reed is telling me it's not true? That Churchill didn't even have Black Dog? It's certainly true that the person who tells a story decides who is good and who is bad. What motivates each person in their story and what their personality traits are. Lord Moran, in my opinion, or in this story, was trying to sell books. That seems clear. William Manchester, Paul Reed's friend, and the man who picked Reed to write the third installment of The Last Lion, perhaps, perhaps having depression, Manchester, in an incredibly admirable attempt to give others with chronic depression hope, wanted to believe in Churchill's black dog. But to end on this note wouldn't be fair to one of Churchill's greatest loves, alcohol. It's easy, really easy to joke about it as Churchill himself was great at doing so. Once saying, quote, I've taken more out of alcohol than alcohol has taken out of me. He added once, I could not live without champagne. In victory, I deserve it. In defeat, I need it. During prohibition, Churchill snuck alcohol into America When he was younger and dropped a bottle of booze deep into the ocean, he dove in after it. But in many of Churchill's books, while the drinking is prolific, it's oftentimes not necessarily considered a problem. And the problem was that in the first two volumes, William Manchester downplays and and wrote specific paragraphs in the introduction to one of those volumes, Churchill's drinking. And Manchester was friends with the Churchill family and dedicated the first book to Mary Churchill. And how can I say this delicately? The Churchill family line is that he had this weak scotch and water uh, in the morning sometimes, uh, to which he would add water all day until it was like mouthwash by dinner time. And, And that stories of his excessive drinking were exaggerations along the lines of stories of his depressions were gross exaggerations and so I did another word document and I I labeled it booze and I went through those diaries again all the diaries of all the people and the interviews Manchester had conducted with dozens of people and I thought my god this is a huge amount of of drinking from age 21 to 90 he continues so on that note uh, I called the publisher as I said and uh, said I've got to go with this these are people who are keeping contemporary diaries noting his huge intake of alcohol and so with would that classify him as an alcoholic? I would think so. Well, I, I think <laughs> if you talk to a uh, two or three physicians or mm-hmm. uh, and, and do what I did with the psychiatrist I spoke to uh, on mental health, that they'd probably say, well, I don't know what you'd call it, but it sure sounds like alcoholism. And then there's this old 
catchphrase, functioning alcoholic. And mm-hmm. as I was writing the book, I thought, this phrase it is meaningless in a sense. Um, you know, if you have a broken leg, compound fracture, you can't be a functioning long-distance runner. I mean, it, 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 if you're a functioning alcoholic and you you get your work done and you win the war and you travel all around the world during the war in unheated planes with this supply of whiskey uh, and and you're up at dawn every day and you, you get two work days built into one because you take these naps and then go to bed at two or three in the morning, get up four hours later, year after year after decade. If that is that person an alcoholic or what's an alcoholic supposed to do? Are they supposed to lose their job, lose their family at a certain point, hit rock bottom, the old expression? So Churchill, in the case of booze, like so much else about him, it's contradictory. Nonetheless, there still seems to be a plethora of signs of a serious mental health disorder. There's obviously a connection between the arts and mental health. And he obviously was this prolific painter and talented, obviously a prolific writer. Um, He's drinking throughout the day, massive ego, massive temper. Um, There are periods of, of melancholy. He's not athletic at all. And so... I mean, if you're drinking all the time, there's not much you can probably do athletically. But, I mean, all of this does suggest that there's some sort of mental health crisis of sorts. But Paul quickly reminds me, which is in his book, that it's not as if he just looked at all of the books out there and Churchill's writings and the accounts of others and put together some spreadsheets and saw no indications of depression or mental illness and declared, well, it's not true. He did a lot more than that. This included talking to Dr. Ronald Pies, one of America's most eminent and prestigious psychiatrists. Paul also spoke with Dr. Michael First, who literally wrote the manual, if you will, on depression, contributing to both the DSM-4 and ICD-11. Now, while, as I said before, I think the English language has a long way to go in being able to articulate depression, the work Dr. First contributed to is considered to be the most accurate criteria for the classification of mental disorders. Dr. Pies and Dr. First, quite the names I must say, are just two of the many top psychiatrists and health experts that Paul spoke with. And I gave each of them a, a blind sample of this. Here's a man, in his, he's in middle age, and he's got a very important position, and he drinks to excess, no doubt about it. And he has a temper, but he apologizes. He's easily brought to tears. Uh, and on and on and on, and and I tried to do this in objective detail, and I mentioned early in his life, uh, in his late 20s or 30s, he had this episode, and he wrote his wife about it in a letter, and all of them said, this sounds like a that episode, uh, like a moderate adult episode of depression, which many of us, perhaps vast majority are going to experience at some point and maybe at another point and another point but these were the doctors who started asking did these episodes come regularly where you know he'd crawl into bed for two weeks and i said no Mm -hmm. Um, and and it's as if we have a video of his life because it was so recorded and then 
I told them it was Churchill, and they kind of laughed and said, wow, what about the black dog? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the, the premise that all of these activities are self-medicating in order to keep at bay an underlying mental condition, I just don't think it stands up to uh, empirical or, or Cartesian European rational thought or logic that it, it, you can build a pretty good sounding case and say, look at this, all of this is self-medication, but it, it, it's, then you're asking other people to disprove a negative. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to happen. Paul Reed almost called that clinic in New Zealand I mentioned, the Black Dog Institute, to let them know they had it wrong. Churchill was, in fairness to depression, not actually chronically depressed. But then he thought... Well, if, if the Black Dog Clinic or, or this story um, is a consolation to someone who does suffer from depression, I think Winston would, uh, would say fine. Of course, he, he wanted history written to put himself in the best light, and then he came out with that famous quip that I think history will treat me with great respect because I intend to write it, and he did. Uh, but, you know, the Black Dog Clinic isn't hurting anybody. They're helping people. Misunderstood history is dangerous, but in this case, it also seems to have provided profound hope to so many, and that shouldn't be overlooked. There are also many examples of historical figures that, although I can't say I've done my own extensive research on, do seem to have had mental health illnesses. Abraham Lincoln, Mark Twain, Michelangelo, and many others. Ultimately, did Churchill have chronic depression? It's nearly impossible to go through Paul Reed's work and think that Churchill did. It's nearly impossible when the source of such a diagnosis was in many ways a source that was trying to sell a book. It's also hard to see how a man who drank so much wasn't using alcohol as some form of medication. Paul Reed put it this way. If I had an objective third party from heaven come down and say, Paul, take my word for it. Mm -hmm. He was depressed and these are... Uh, mechanisms to keep it at bay, I'd say, okay, the Almighty just told me the the answer. But without that, you're not going to get the answer, I don't think. Before I met Paul, I was quite proud of my movie on chronic depression that rests on my bookshelf. And after speaking with him, despite some reservations at first, I still am. So maybe Churchill didn't have Black Dog, but for now, I do, and I'm not keeping it a secret any longer. Even if, for Churchill, that's not what really happened. If you're an author, historian, work in the mental health field, or simply have a take, we sincerely want to hear what you think. You can leave a message at 347-674-6980, or go to my Twitter handle, at Andrew Jenks. Thanks to Jim Miller for all of his help on this episode. This series is produced by Seven Bucks Productions, including Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, and Brian Gortz, in association with Cadence 13. 
Next week on What Really Happened, Princess Diana was the most talked about person in the world. Everywhere she went, so did security, dozens if not hundreds of reporters, and Diana diehard loyalists. Her divorce from Prince Charles was stunning. When she died a year later, the world was devastated. And the minute that fateful accident happened is the moment everyone started asking questions. Was it an accident or was there foul play? What really happened? 